my name's Alita, Alita Chen, and I will be kind of talking through all of this with you today. Hopefully we can get some good discussions going in different areas. It's nice that it's a roundtable format. It works very well with some of the things I've thought of doing today. So I'm going to go ahead and open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this time to be here today. Lord God, I thank you so much for all the people that you've put out there. And Lord, sometimes it's a challenge to communicate clearly, but I pray that you would help us all learn to communicate more clearly, both for physical needs, but also, Lord, most importantly, for spiritual needs, that we would be able to communicate clearly uh, to our patients how they can better know you. And Lord God, I pray that you would glorify everything today in your name. Amen. So I'm a professor and at Cedarville University School of Pharmacy, and professors are not necessarily known for being short-winded, but I promise I will let you out on time today, so no worries. And when I talked with them about this particular session, we, I had a colleague of mine who's created with names come up with the title for this session, because really, the last stop for most of our patients in any setting is some sort of medication-related need, whether it's a specific pharmacy or it's a dispensing area at your mission site, whatever it may be, your last stop is getting that pill, and then they have to go back to wherever they're from, their home, and go ahead and carry out all the instructions you've given them. Or maybe you've given them a lifestyle modification, and they have to carry that out as well. So this presents a real challenge. We think we've done this great job explaining everything, and they come back, or maybe we see them again, and they haven't taken their medication. My favorite story is I was working as a pharmacist in a rural community, and this patient came in, and his doctor had given him his third medication for type 2 diabetes. And so I asked him, well, how are you going to take this medication? He told me. I said, well, when do you take your other medications, the other two? He said, well, I haven't started taking them yet. I thought I would start tomorrow taking all three. (laughs) And this is all too often what happens. We have this communication barrier, and so we need to find ways to break down that barrier and work with our patients in order to make sure that they get the best outcomes in their health care. So really today, I'm going to talk about the importance, the cultural barriers, ways to educate, and really give you an opportunity to create some strategies that may work for your specific patient group that you're working with. But first, active learning. Wake up. It's 9.25 in the morning. Hopefully we can, you're a little more awake than my students at the 8 o'clock hour that I have to try and entertain. Uh, So... First question, why do my patients struggle with medication adherence? So go ahead and talk about this for a few minutes with the people at your table. So introduce yourself if you haven't introduced yourself before. Okay, it sounds like there's some fantastic conversations. But just to keep it moving a little, what are some things that you identified at your tables? Cost, okay. Accountability. Accountability. Side effects. Language. Yeah. Yes, health beliefs, assumptions about medications, things like that, yes. Gender barriers. 
So they're working through the processes of change, understanding that they actually have a disease and moving forward with that concept. That can often be a huge barrier. Now understanding the importance of taking their medications in relation to the disease. Why is it important? They don't feel bad. Why should I have to take a pill? Okay. Refrigeration. So if you're in a non-U.S. setting in particular, there are huge with the access to medications, the storage conditions. Can they get it on a regular basis? Is it something that's frequently available, or does your site rely on donations and there's issues with different medications and different strategies? Good. Well, it sounds like you – oh, yes. And they share it with their families and friends. Yes. Let's all share. This worked for me. It's going to work for you, too. Or they don't finish something and they save it in case they need it next time. So these are all challenges. And this session is kind of designed for people both in U.S. context dealing with pharmacy or medication-related issues as well as global because there are a lot of things with cultural barriers and language barriers and conditions and things like that. So how can we approach it? So hopefully there will be some strategies. There is a handout available online for this session. So you can access it there. How many people in this room are pharmacists? Or pharmacists? Well, go with pharmacists first. Okay. All right. Pharmacy students. Okay. Um, nurses. Yay. Okay. Physicians. Okay. And physician assistants. All right. I'm running out of thinking. Nurse practitioner, of course. Sorry. All right, who else am I forgetting? All right, so we've got diversity in this room with regard to health professions, so hopefully this can be useful for all of you. And feel free along the way to ask me questions if you have any. So I love this quote by the Surgeon General, uh, Dr. Koop. Drugs don't work in patients who don't take them. And it's a very simple concept, but it's very true. And there's a variety of reasons, but we know medication adherence is a huge issue. But we're used to the older definition of medication compliance. A healthcare provider tells a patient, you must take this drug, the patient does it. But we found that doesn't really work. Patients don't really do well with being told what to do. It's really supposed to be a relationship where there's some give and take. So, yes, the guidelines may say this drug is ideal, or this you may have only a couple drugs to choose from at your site, but you have to work with the patient to determine what they're willing to do as well because sometimes you're just throwing away expensive medications on a patient who won't actually take them, or the patient may be paying a lot for a medication that they're not going to take. So we really want adherence, an agreement between the patient and you whether it's with medications, diet, lifestyle changes, whatever it may be. So in developed countries, our adherence rate at best is 50%. Nearly three out of every four Americans report not taking their medications as directed. And that's in the U.S. If we look at developing countries, there's really no estimates. But essentially, it's much higher. There's lack of resources, there's access inequalities, there's all sorts of issues that lead to them not being able to be adherent, whether it's of their own volition or just because of access, storage, things like that issues. And a lot of times, even if they do get the medication, there are issues with maintaining it in certain climates. And there's really rising chronic disease rates. 
So if we look, we're changing from a system of those communicable diseases to non-communicable diseases. Over the last 20 years, it's changed. I was in Cambodia in June, and I saw all these rates of hypertension, high cholesterol, and diabetes, and all these chronic conditions that these patients are facing. They're now, certainly the, not, the communicable diseases aren't particularly 100% going away. We still have lots of that. But they're becoming more and more prevalent today to get the hypertension and hyperlipidemia. So these are medications that require continuous use for the rest of their lives and, change, and getting people to understand the disease processes when they don't necessarily feel bad may be a challenge. And also getting an adequate medication supply for these patients permanently for the rest of their life is quite a challenge in many countries. I know at the site I was at, they, get, they rely a lot on donations or buying from other countries, and the same medication isn't always available. And then they had issues when the patient got back home to their communities. How long was it going to take before they could get back? Do they need to give a three-month supply, a six-month supply, a one-year supply, depending on how far away they are? And then once they get back, I mean, we tell our patients in the U.S., don't keep your medicines near in the bathroom, right, because of humidity issues and things like that. Well, there, I mean, it's 90-some degrees year-round. It's a made humidity condition, so how do we deal with all of that? And we all know it's a bad thing. And it depends on where you are and what your problems are, how it exactly manifests. We've got antibiotic resistance. That's always a big deal no matter what. People take four or five of their days of therapy and then they stop. And we get these superbugs. And we've got huge problems with that. We've got disease progression, HIV, AIDS, if anyone works with those patients. That is a huge issue, and we're trying to get the best outcomes. And we know that if they're adherent to their medications in HIV, AIDS, it's pretty much turned into mostly a chronic disease in that aspect. So it's a problem. And for a lot of our countries, it's a huge family burden. With, so, with societies really dependent on the, in the female role of taking care of the family, they end up with a loss of income if one of the male family members is perhaps ill. And then the women are now not only caring for multiple members of their family, but now they have additional people that they're caring for and also trying to find ways to provide. So it's a huge burden on the family having disease progression. And particularly in societies where the families all come together to support one another, it can really have significant effects on the whole family structure. So that's just my introduction because most of you probably already know that. I see all the nods in here, so I didn't want to spend too long on that. But we're really going to talk, spend most of our time on these barriers and really how can we solve them. So first, this is the World Health Organization's perspective on what the big barriers are. The patient itself is a barrier. The therapy is a barrier. The condition is a barrier. Socioeconomic issues or sociocultural issues can be a problem. And the patient, and then we ourselves are a big chunk of the problem. As much as we hate to admit it, we create a lot of our own issues. And honestly, of all these barriers, we can, we can help some with the therapy. We can help some with the patient aspects. But really, the biggest target is me. I can change me. 
the easiest. Well, hopefully the Lord can change me the easiest, and then I can do a little bit more uh, based on what he's taught me. So we really need to work on these barriers. And so I'll spend the most time talking about the healthcare system, or what I like to call the clinician-related factors. So how many of you have seen one of these recently, an orange barrel blocking your way or causing you to slow down in traffic? I know on my drive here from Cedarville, I drove down I-71, and I got stuck in traffic thanks to the lovely orange barrels. Well, we don't want those. And so our patients are often facing those orange barrels, preventing them from taking their medications appropriately. And they have their own problems. So they have expectations of what a healthcare is supposed, of what healthcare is supposed to be. So maybe they have the idea that you come in, you essentially wave a magic wand, and they're all cured. They're very much cure-focused. When a lot of the chronic diseases, it's not cure, it's maintenance. It's life prolongation, reduced morbidity, mortality. And they may have also had a really nasty prior experience with a healthcare provider. We see that in the U.S., we see that worldwide. They had a healthcare provider that didn't care about them, or maybe they didn't explain something to them, made them feel not part of the team, part of the process, talk down to them, whatever it may be. We see that in many cultural groups throughout the world, and it's something that has to be overcome in order for effective care, because they're not going to listen to you if they don't trust you. And for many of us, we're working with people of a different skin color, and so that can be an additional barrier or a different gender as well. They can look at you and say, well, what do you know because you are not me? And so it can create a, a very interesting dynamic as a healthcare professional. Motivation. I love patients, and I love all different shapes, sizes, varieties, but it does not matter there is no certain demographic that tells you you're going to be more motivated. We all suffer from lack of motivation. How many of us have made a New Year's resolution and not kept it? Okay, so maybe some of you are a little better than me. I have made many a New Year's resolution and not kept it. And I suffer from motivation. The work day gets a little long. I'm tired. I don't want to go exercise for my cardiovascular health. My patients face the same motivational issues. It can be challenging. You ask um, perhaps the matriarch of a family to make these diet modifications, and she provides all the food for her family. And how many of her family members are going to want to change to a fruit and vegetable diet? And that's assuming they can afford that. So... I've heard stories of, well, my husband is Asian. That's how I get the last name, Chen. He's from the country of Malaysia. And trying to remove rice from a huge chunk of his diet is, is hard. And I understand that. It is part of the meal time, and it has a lot of associations with his childhood. And so that can be motivation to change that behavior when he doesn't have a health condition yet. <laughs> um, no, he doesn't have any health conditions yet, but it can be a challenge. We have to want to do it. Cultural beliefs, societal beliefs, what do they believe about the disease state? So in the U.S., we typically have pretty solid, we, we got the science thing somewhat down. I mean, there's definitely some differences across the U.S., but you get outside the U.S., and there's 
actually we could learn from them sometimes because there are spiritual issues that impact health issues, right, all the time. So we've gone too much the other direction. But our patients in some other countries are at the opposite side of the spectrum where perhaps they believe everything's related to something they did or it's a punishment or it's culturally derived or that someone in my village said this, so it must be this. Although we hear that all the time here in the U.S., well, my friend recommended this, so it must work. I remember when Oprah recommended neti pots, I, I was driven crazy for about a month at the pharmacy. So <laughs> there are definitely cultural and societal beliefs that really impact everything. Social support. And this varies from country to country. Some countries are big on social support, and everything is community-driven. And so if you've got one of those countries, you've got to get people on your side because a community effort is going to work much better than an individual effort. Or find that one person that, is, that they will listen to. So we want to break down that barrier, and instead we want to clear the road for them to go further. So implementing community initiatives can be a big thing. Now, depending on what you're trying to do, if it's just medications, you may not be able to do a community initiative. But you may be able to have them get a couple of friends and get a support system in helping with that. Uh, so it just depends on what you're trying to do. You should address and accommodate health beliefs. Don't dismiss them. That's one of the biggest mistakes we can make as healthcare providers. Because the patients truly believe this, we can work through them on their, on their worldview and talk with them about it. And if they have a non-Christian worldview, we can work through that and incorporate that as part of our discussion with patients and try and address that and work with them on it. I teach my students how to do motivational interviewing. Uh, I have a link on my handout online to, if you want to learn more about that. But it essentially puts the conversation more in the patient's hands and helps the patient make more of the decisions. That way they take ownership, and it's the decisions that they want to make. And so it can be a really effective strategy because it's a lot of listening and repeating back to them. And if there's some language barriers, this can be really helpful because that way you can make sure that you're both hearing things the same. Or if you're working through an interpreter, that the interpreter is interpreting things correctly between the two of you as well. And it's also important to discuss these prior experiences and expectations with your patients. Know what their problems are with health care providers and see if you can be the difference. So... I teach social behavioral stuff in the pharmacy school, and so this is one of my favorite topics, so I had to include it. But health literacy is a huge issue in healthcare, period, anywhere in the world. If we all speak the same language, we, are, we should be able to obtain, our goal is to have patients obtain, process, and understand health information. That's the basic definition of health literacy. And if we don't, ha if patients don't have high health literacy, they have major issues with gaining knowledge, and adhering to their medications. So we've got this really big disparity in communication. Now, this is the U.S. I'm going to talk about the non-U.S. for that in a moment. So healthcare information in the U.S. is written at least at the 10th grade level. Now, we're starting to move forward and doing more patient health literacy appropriate materials. The goal is to have everything written at the fifth grade level or lower. Now, I have some of my pharmacy students in this room, and I made them do an assignment to write something in fifth grade level or lower. It is hard. We are so used to our jargon, and it can be a really big challenge. 
And most of our Medicaid patients in the U.S. are at the fifth grade reading level. So that's why we're trying to shoot for that. But that's just the U.S. If we look at the world, not all the people in the world are literate. Country-specific, I mean, you've got a balance of them. But some countries, many of their patients can't read or write. So that changes how you deal with them in the healthcare community. And if they don't have basic literacy, it's going to be really hard to follow sometimes more complex directions and things you're asking them to do. And so this really leads to confusion. Neither you nor the patient really know what is getting across. And we're going to talk about solution to this a little bit later at the end when I talk about some counseling strategies. So don't fear. Now, here's another barrier, cost. And this is a barrier no matter where you go. So can the patient afford the medication? The answer in many cases is no. And maybe they can, but they can't afford it on a regular basis. So they come up with strategies to make it last a bit, a bit longer. And a lot of times they don't want to tell you I can't afford this because it's a pride issue. I mean, if you think about it from your perspective, if you've ever forgotten your wallet and tried to pay for something and all of a sudden you don't have money there, it's a huge embarrassment for you. And so for a lot of these patients, it can be a huge pride issue. And there's also an issue of reliable access to care or safe medications. In cities, there might be clinics available, but we get in rural settings in the U.S. and internationally, and patients may have to travel four hours to get to a health care center. So my husband's family lives in the capital city of Kuala Lumpur, and there's not even always reliable access to care there. It depends on which hospital they go to if, and if they can afford the private hospital half the time, whether or not they get it. And they're better off than many of their neighboring countries there. So it can be a huge thing. And safe medications, the pharmacies that are located in your country, are they reliable? Now, we, in the U.S., we have standards, but we still have issues even in the U.S. We go internationally. In uh, Cambodia, we were looking at the medication packets, and a lot of times they just had steroids as part of it. So it really it made the patient feel better because you're giving them a steroid, but it really didn't treat the condition when a lot of times it was for high cholesterol or an antibiotic or an asthma issue. So it, it has limited use. So we don't always know where the medications are coming from. Now, if it's our sites, we probably know where the medications are coming from, but does the patient come back to your site? And particularly if you're short-term missions, the patient definitely may not come back to your site. It may be another year before a team comes in. And so where are they going to get the medications in the meantime? So we need to think through strategies that work for the long-term, not just for the short-term for these patients. And so it may require thinking outside the box on how can they manage this on a day-to-day -day basis. So if there are storage condition issues, maybe they have to, you have to figure out if they can get ice. And if it creates all this hassle in the community, can they get a community center where they can put their medications in an ice area so at least they distribute the cost around people? Or can you find medications that at least are pretty okay in the heat conditions and will be good enough? They may not last as long, but at least they'll be good enough to get the patient through. And so you have to kind of start thinking outside the box and creatively to make do with the resources you have. 
And so I love this comic. I have to show it. Um, warning may cause sudden loss of income, but a lot of times that's what our patients feel like when they get their prescriptions. And I remember a story once, a, an older lady came to me and said, I'm trying to decide today if I'm going to buy my medications or I'm going to have enough to eat for the rest of the month. And that broke my heart. I still almost tear up today because I'm so fortunate and so many people are making those decisions. Do I take care of this need in my family or do I take care of myself? And most of the time they're going to focus on their family versus their self. So we help our patients by trying to use low-cost medications, generics that are frequently available. The goal is really finding what's frequently available that they can take. So condition-related factors. This is the next one. So perceptions of personal need, and someone mentioned that earlier. Do they feel like they're sick? Well, how many chronic diseases do you actually feel sick? You go to the doctor, you get a blood test, and all of a sudden you've got these numbers that say, I've got high cholesterol, I've got hypertension. What? I feel fine. And so... Imagine what your patient is feeling like when they get that news and they have to adjust to that. Have they reconciled with the fact that they have that disease or illness? And long-term therapy, lifelong therapy, many of us don't understand the concept that you can have something that you take for the rest of your life. It's not, there is no cure. And that's really hard for a lot of people to wrap their minds around. And so you have to figure out, Okay, is that a challenge for them? How can I address that? How can I educate? And they may not know much about the disease or condition. And so we can really spend time explaining the benefit of therapy and the disease process. Giving our patients just the medication is not really as helpful as giving them the medication and making sure they understand what the medication is for and why it's going to help them. And doing that in in as simple terms as possible. Okay, so this is the clinician-related factors, and this is kind of the important crux of, the, of where we can do the most good. Because all the other things, we can do some of these, but it's going to be more challenging. This is the one where we can really make a huge impact. We have really poor communication skills a lot of the time. It happens. All of a sudden, you're in the middle of school, and you realize, I've got this whole language that not everybody else follows. And you're using it every day, and you don't always realize it. It's amazing. And so we've got that, and we end up with a process where we've had a long time of people telling people what to do, healthcare providers telling patients what to do. So we've got distrust. They didn't try to learn their culture. They... Maybe people gave them different instructions, which adds extra confusion, and use medical terminology. So they walk out, and they really didn't have an experience that is beneficial. I went to a healthcare provider in the last year or so, and the healthcare provider spent five minutes with me and used entirely medical terminology and jargon. I barely followed. And I can only imagine what this person's patients felt like on a regular basis. It was frustrating for me because I wanted to know more. And so our patients feel the same way. And it works in a global context, too. We kind of hand them a pack and say, take this. 
and maybe they've gotten different instructions from the last team that went through. Maybe they're not sure about trusting you and what the Western medicine really is and what it does, and why isn't it as good as what my village elder recommended? And we don't address any of that. And it just creates these broken relationships. And trying to fix those relationships is really a huge component. And it really leads to all sorts of problems within this. So what do I recommend? Well, I really recommend that we help our patients by improving our culturally sensitive communication. So before you go work with a group of people, learn about them. Before I went to Cambodia, I read a whole stack of books and talked to people who are missionaries in Cambodia to get an understanding of the culture because I didn't want to walk in and ruin something that people were already doing. And it was a great clinic that I worked with, and they gave me a lot of prep resources. So I was very fortunate. But I understood the worldview of that country, and that helped me understand the patient perspectives. And that changed how I viewed things. I didn't want to come in with my... I mean, I grew up in Ohio, so I, I think a certain way. And that's okay that I think that way. I mean, God changes the parts of me that aren't right, but I don't want to walk in and assume that they understand what, what I, where I've been and what I've done, and I don't want to make the same assumption about them and what they believe. And part of that process is really encouraging the shared decision-making process because if you start to understand the patient's perspective and where they come from and listen to it, then you can include them on the conversation and turn it into a relationship. And relationships, like we heard last night, that's where you start seeing the change of their worldview and influence them for Christ, which that's going to trickle down into every aspect of their life because changing a changed worldview leads to a totally different perspective on health. And we need to really communicate clearly. We need to explain why the behavior is important. I want to know why it's important. I mean, everyone who has a child, I don't have children yet, but I, all my friends who are parents, they say, what's the, what are the biggest questions little kids ask? Why? Why? My students ask the same question. Why do I have to do this? <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> but it's the same thing. We want to know why. We're, as humans, we're programmed why. We saw Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They wanted to know more. They wanted to know why. They want to understand. We haven't changed. But in this aspect, it's good to give them more information and help them to understand why. Really avoid jargon. So a lot of cultures, you may not speak the language. So you may be using an interpreter. See if you can find ways to communicate without words. Find pictures or diagrams, but you've got to make sure they work in that culture. I used road barriers earlier. That may not work in every country. They may not see construction barrels. So that would be a really terrible example to use if I were in a different country. But it works here. Find out what works there and use pictures to represent that. So if you want them to store in a certain place, like let's say in a dark area of the room or maybe dig an area underground to store their medications where the ground doesn't get as warm, then perhaps you draw a picture and a diagram of where you'd like them to do it, and then they've got that and they can take it home. 
or if you want them to take medications at a certain time of day, you find out, all right, are they used to where the sun is in the sky? Maybe you put by where the sun is in the sky where their medications are. So you find out what works in that context and you change it based on that. And sometimes you might want to think about, I read a bunch of research from uh, African missions, and a lot of times they use some sort of individual, whether it's a, you know, someone a little bit more educated in the community or they take a local resource and train them to be part of the conversation facilitator. So they're reaching out peer-to-peer. Perhaps you train them in what you want to get across for this medication, and they do that peer-to-peer communication. That way it's not you with your gender or cultural or ethnic barrier on one side and the patient on the other. And that can really work. And plus, I think a lot of us, our ultimate goal is anyway for these individuals to take ownership and start changing their own communities for the better. So that can be a great resource. Now, what, am I, what do I want you to take home from this? Well, this is one of my pharmacy students who's not, she's in her second professional year. She went on a missions trip last year to Jamaica. And she came back, and she gave a, a, her story of what she did. And she told me, Dr. Chen, I actually used something you taught me. Which was great. It's like the highlight of every faculty member to hear that something you said was remotely useful at some point in time. So I'm going to probably keep that story for the next 30, 40 years and just retell it because that may be it. Um, but she did this process. She, so the first part is converse about the medications. Have a conversation. Sit down with the patient. Talk with them. Now, you may be at a super busy site, and this can't happen. And I understand that. There are times where this just can't happen. If you have students, use your students because they're super excited to do this process. So this is if you can have time to develop these relationships, even spend one to two minutes and try and have a conversation. In the U.S., we encourage encourage people counseling to ask a couple of questions. What did the doctor tell you this medication was for? What did the healthcare professional or nurse practitioner or physician assistant tell you this medication was for? How did they tell you to take the medication? And what did they tell you to expect? That way you find out in advance what they know. And then you can just correct rather than repeat something that they've already heard. But it's really important to spend time talking with them, at least even briefly, what it's for so they understand this is something that you need to take for the rest of your life or for 10 days to get rid of your bug and explain why they need to take it and why adherence is important. But what's most important and what all the literature that I have seen talks about is having them teach it back to you. But you don't want to make them feel dumb while doing it because it's really easy to do that. You want to say, just to make sure I said everything correctly or I communicated clearly or I came across clearly because you're putting the ownership on, on yourself. And so you're, you don't want to ask them if they understand. In many cultures, they're going to nod no matter what because you're an authority figure. They're going to follow you. They're going to just say, yes, of course I understand. And they may not. 
So you need to make sure they're teaching back to you, how are you going to take this medication? Why should I take this medication regularly? How am I going to store it? How am I going to incorporate it into my daily life? And spending that time with the patient and doing that can be really important. And so even if you only have a minute or two, you can get at least a few things across and check their understanding. That's great. They don't need the whole package insert. Nobody should read that anyway because the last thing you want is all the questions after that. <laughs> but what is absolutely essential? I actually, two days ago, I had a nursing professor say in a session, uh, the it was the necessary, the nice, and then, oh, Nuts, thank you. Necessary, nice, and nuts. Avoid the nuts stuff. They're, so you need, to have, you need to get across what's necessary. It's great if you have time to include the stuff that's nice to know, but the things that are nuts that nobody really needs to know, like mechanism of action or, or you know, there's a lot of things that they just don't have to know, side effects that occur in only a few patients, things like that. They don't have to know, so skip that. Just give them the one or two things that you really want them to remember. Apparently, people only remember mm, 10 to 20% of what you say, which is sometimes fairly obvious um, when you work with people. So make sure that 10 to 20% of what they remember are the most important points and drive those home. So now that I've talked for about 20-ish minutes solid or 30 minutes solid, I like to wake people back up. So did you come up with any solutions that work for your patients? Talk in your small tables, and then we'll come back and share a little bit, and then we'll be done. So there are some. There's actually a vendor here who has, like, coloring books for kids, even, with things like that. And I know there's some stuff online that you can find um, with pictures to explain things. A lot more places are, yeah. Now, there's, it's, it's limited, it's, and it can be challenging to find. Is there a need for that? Because I'm an illustrator as well. Oh, I'm sure there's definitely a need for that admissions organization. Um, you know, uh, Jeff Lewis, who's one of the coordinators of this session, and I actually work with him. Um, he works with LexiComp, which does patient information stuff. So, and yeah, he, well, he he has a relationship with them. He used to work for them. Now he works for my university, and they do patient information. Yes, they do patient information for low health literacy, but they don't have diagrams, and they're looking to continue to expand their stuff. And so he might he might know more of like. How could I get a hold of him? So. Um, his email address, I think, is. I think his email address is jdlewis at cedarville.edu. Okay, he's at Cedarville. Yes. So, and you could. Oh, okay. So yeah, he's on the he's on the staff there in the school pharmacy. Yeah, and he's also at this conference. Yeah. Thank you. No problem.
Okay, it sounds like there's a lot of great conversations again, but I'd love to hear from some of you about what you, what solutions you came up with. So does anyone have a solution they'd like to share? Yes. One of the things I do on church is try to learn pharmaceutical whatever language so I can tell them in their language so that gets that back and forth thing and respect I trust deal going. Then I ask my translator to make sure that they understood what I said. <laughs> That's really a great uh, perspective. So before you go somewhere, See what pharmaceutical terms you can learn in their language and also have verification from the translator that you didn't mess up, uh, which can happen, <laughs> but uh, I have messed up in Spanish mostly. Um, so I understand, uh, and I think that's a great option because the more you can communicate with them on their perspective, the more successful and more caring they think that you will be, that you care about them and you want a relationship, so great. What else? Oh. Something I thought of um, while you were talking, oftentimes patients come in and they have multiple complaints. It's like they've got ten things on their list of, that are wrong with them, and but you don't have time to necessarily deal with all ten things. And sometimes patients feel brushed off because maybe you're trying to deal with maybe the most important thing. You know, maybe it's that elevated blood sugar. Maybe it's the hypertension something. And then the patient's like, but what about my sore thumb or, you know, my, my back or, or mm -hmm. something? And so I think sometimes it's important to, when we talk with patients, to, even if we can't spend a lot of time dealing with everything, but at least say, okay, this is what, you've talked about this, you mentioned this, and at least acknowledge, you know, what they've complained about and maybe some follow-up steps are like, we'll do, we'll do this next. Mm -hmm. That way they don't walk away feeling like, well, I only got one thing for this one thing, but I've got all this other stuff wrong with I think that's a great point. So sometimes the patient's agenda is different than yours. So the patient's focused on something else. In motivational interviewing, they actually recommend that you let the patient set the agenda. Now, this works very well if you're doing long-term counseling with patients. So perhaps you're in a clinic where you see the patients on a regular basis. That can work really well. But at least taking some time to acknowledge that and not just glossing over it helps to build that relationship and that trust. So at least spending a brief amount of time on it can be really beneficial. Okay, I saw a hand over there, and then I'll go back over here. Yes. doing family-related efforts or community-related efforts to get at the prevention stage, maybe rather than the deal with crisis stage. So seeing if you can get the whole family to jump on board and get engaged in the process. And honestly, that's probably the way your patient will make the most change, too, is if they get everyone involved. So great point. And I have time for one last one, so I'm going to do that.
ones are directly, are directly related to, to, to relationship. And somewhere along the line, you have to build in time with the, the patient with somebody who they perceive as actually cares about them because they actually do. Mm -hmm. And spend the time with them to, to, to communicate the what, why, and the where. And, and follow up. Yeah, it, it is. I, I mean, I know that some of you are struggle with timing and depending on your healthcare setting. But if you can find times or find creative ways to make time in your schedule, use resources that you have available. If you've got someone super excited in your community that wants to learn more and has never gotten an opportunity, can they do basic health education? So find resources and ways. In the, in the pharmacy realm, we love to say our students are our best asset in that because they're free. Um, so, but finding someone who is smart and maybe hasn't had the opportunity, the education and the training, maybe they don't even read or, sp or they don't either even read their own language, but it doesn't mean they can't learn. So that can be a great way to utilize. And I've seen multiple mission sites that train locals to go ahead and handle a lot of those issues. I want to thank you very much for your time today. I will be available afterward for questions if you have any, but I want to be gracious and make sure you're done on time. So thank you.